And the section we're looking at now, chapter 3, goes all the way through to chapter 4 and verse 6. And the end of verse 4 of chapter 4, this too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And we saw last time that time just locks us in, time to be born, a time to die. Without God, it's all worth nothing. What I'm going to say tonight is we need a father. Now, John, I'll ask you to come and read from Ecclesiastes 3, verse 16, the rest of this section. Thank you very much. So, from verse 16 of chapter 3, the writer says, And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. And in the place of justice, wickedness was there. I thought in my heart, God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the spirit of man rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a man than to enjoy his work because that is his lot. For who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Very much, John. We're going to look at that in just a minute. Before we do that, we're going to sing about the king of the ages. We may be locked into time, but our God is the king of eternal, the king of the ages, almighty God, perfect love, ever just and true. Let's stand and sing. It's good to know that our God is in control of time and eternity. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, please, to the passage John read to us a few minutes ago, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16, all the way to chapter 4, verse 6. We're going to talk about being frightened and lonely. I love roller coasters. Actually, I hate roller coasters. I love getting off a roller coaster. Yeah, I've done it. It's great. The, the thing is, before you can get off the roller coaster, you've got to have got on it. So there you are at Alton Towers, and you get strapped in on the oblivion, 
and you're taken up, dunk, 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 and then you're taken along, and then you're tilted forward, and all you can see is the massive drop with the deep tunnel, the black hole below you, and your body is hanging there, suspended over the drop, and suddenly you plunge downwards to the ground, and then to the black hole, and then through it, and then it ends, and you get off. Oh, you're so pleased. Oh, yeah, you've done it. You've got up. Now, just imagine. Just imagine something's gone wrong. And you plunge down through the black hole, and then you keep going. And up again, around, down, up, and up again, ever and ever and ever. Always just going round and round and round and round. It won't stop. It can't stop. And you're trapped into it. That, says Solomon in, in Ecclesiastes, that's life. Or to be more precise, that's life without God. Life under the sun. You're trapped in to a never-ending roller coaster. No wonder people shout, stop the world, I want to get off. When I lived in India, I, I was amazed that I went to the museum in Madras, in Chennai, and I went there, and they just had absolutely nothing cross-shaped. And I thought, well, of course, it's not a Christian country, it's a Hindu country, but nothing was cross-shaped. Everything was round, circular, the, the circle of life. You live, you die, you're reincarnated. You live, you die, you're reincarnated. You live to die, you're reincarnated. And you're trapped on this roller coaster. Now, we know that the teaching of reincarnation is illogical. If we die and our soul comes back to be born uh, as a new bo in a newborn baby, then I suppose someone could imagine, guess, that that would happen. <laughs> but... What happens is the population increases. So you've got to have new souls coming from somewhere. Where are those new souls coming from? Uh, and if new souls are being recreated, why are they starting as human beings if being a human being is a punishment for sins in the last life? Just doesn't make sense, does it? Reincarnation just keeps pushing the problem back to a previous existence. You suffer and die now because of sins in a previous existence. Well, if that is true, why did anyone die or go wrong in the first existence? <laughs> you know? Indeed, why did they have a first existence if existence is a result of sin before? Anyhow, now's not the time really to deal with reincarnation, but I, I just want you to realize that an atheist is trapped in this life. And reincarnationists are trapped in all lives. And both of them are just going on this roller coaster that is taking them and just they can't get off. It won't stop. They're just stuck in it. And it's going round and round and round. Uh, this is what we call fate. And it's unbearable. And this is what we saw last time. We're trapped in time. There's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant, a time to reap. And we're trapped in time. And we desperately need God as what I would call today our Father. 
If God is our Father, if he works in all things for our good, if he is watching over us and loving us and caring for us, then, then we're not locked into this fearsome roller coaster, just going round and round, being driven by fate. No. We were thinking this morning, we're in a car. We've got our seatbelt on, but our Heavenly Father is driving us home, and he knows the best way home. We need God as our Father to escape from this unbearable grip of fate. And that's what we looked at last time in chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. So now we move on to chapter 3, verses 16 to 22, where we see we not only need our Father who is... Um, outside of the limits of time and is taking us home, but we need a redeemer. Verses 16 to 22. We need a redeemer because we are lived in a world filled with injustice, that's verses 16 to 17, and heading for the grave, that's verses 18 to 21. And I guess these two major things make life unbearable for people. First of all, the pain of injustice. What I want to call the stink of injustice. North Korea, Rhodesia, China. When I was here 20 years ago or so, we had a uh, focus meeting on the Monday, and we had someone from the Dorset Social Services come and speak about uh, child abuse in the area and showed the most horrific, disturbing pictures and then said, this isn't from the whole country. This is just from our locality. We live in a world filled with injustice. We think of the businesses like Carillion where, where they're making people redundancy and people, are, their whole life is gone while they've been getting massive bonuses. We think of Manchester United paying Sanchez how much? £600,000 a week. And now we find that their workers in the uh, 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 groundsmen are getting so little that they're having to decide whether they're going to have a hot meal or a warm house, but they can't afford both. And just the injustice that's going on. We think of the Jimmy Savills and the Harvey Weinsteins. Oh. I was mentioned last week about the church in Cape Town where this was at the prayer meeting, wasn't it, where Frank Retief was vicar and they threw in the bombs on the 25th of July, 1993, and 11 were killed uh, and 58 were injured because they thought these were <laughs> white supremacists, not worshippers of Christ. And um, Alec told me that he knew a lady, a Christian in one of the care homes around here who was actually injured in that explosion in Cape Town. Or think of the Ivory Coast. Seven years ago, on the 29th of May, 2011, Raphael Aka Kuami and his younger brother, Kuasi, were beaten, tortured, and crucified because they were Christians. On and on I could go. We tell our children, life is not fair. Get used to it. So Solomon takes comfort from the fact that God will judge justly. On the day of judgment, 
God will put matters right. We need a judge. Without God as judge, everything is meaningless. Now, verse 17, I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Without God as judge, everything is meaningless. Why not rob, rape, wreck, and ruin as much as you like? <laughs> if there's no consequences. If you do get caught, well, you just take an overdose of sleeping pills and just go to sleep peacefully for a very long time, forever. Why not? If there's no God to give account to, why not? Really, the only proper reason for living a, a, a moral, sacrificial lifestyle is because there's a judgment, there's consequences. Injustice stinks. And this world is full of injustice. People live with the pain of injustice, the stink of injustice, and secondly, the sting of death, verses 18 to 21. People are terrified of death. The fear of death is termed thanatophobia. Caroline and I used to live in the Isle of Thanet, Death Isle. Well, the fear of death is real. Julian Barnes wrote a book about his life called Nothing to be Frightened of. And he tells us that he doesn't believe in God and so there's nothing after death, but he's scared to death about dying. Sometimes he wakes up in the night beating his pillow with his fist, fighting thoughts about death, shouting, Oh no, oh no, oh no. He has worried about death, he says, at least once a day for the past 40 years. Edgar Allan Poe wrote horror stories. <laughs> I love reading his stories. But anyhow, uh, 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 Edgar Allan Poe died when he was 40. He was discovered in a delirious state, walking the streets of Baltimore, wearing someone else's clothes. He was taken to hospital where he died four days later, and he kept calling out the name Reynolds. His final words were, Lord, help my poor soul. His most famous book was The Pit and the Pendulum. The story is from the days of the Spanish Inquisition. And the man is in a prison cell, tied to wooden boards, with a picture of Father Time on the ceiling and the pendulum swinging above him. And every hour it moves just a tiny bit closer to him and he's just waiting there waiting there until ultimately the pendulum will kill him he's just locked in a dungeon waiting to die and Edgar Allan Poe tells us he wrote this because he was suffering from death anxiety our modern generation doesn't think much about death well, we joke about it like Woody Allen. He says, I'm not frightened about dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. We have removed death from our lifestyle. People don't die at home anymore. Funerals happen outside of town in a hidden crematorium, and children don't go, and it's incredibly brief. Then it's <laughs> back to watch Coronation Street. 
and hope that you never have to die yourself. Truth is, if there is no life after death, then life before death is utterly meaningless. Listen to Somerset Moore's Nowhere Near Christian Man. If one puts aside the existence of God and the survival after life as too doubtful, one has to make up one's mind as to the use of life. If death ends all, if I have neither to hope for good nor to fear evil, I must ask myself, what am I here for? And how in these circumstances I must conduct myself? Now the answer is plain, but so unpalatable that most will not face it. There is no meaning for life, and thus life has no meaning. If there is no God and no life after death, there is no point in eating or breathing. There is no point in going to work, no point in getting up in the morning, no point in not blowing yourself up, no point in blowing yourself up. And here we see where Ecclesiastes is an Old Testament book because verse 21 says, who knows if our spirit lives on after death? I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the others. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Verses 16 and 17 told us that there must be judgment to come or else injustice rules in a moral universe, which is incredible. And then in verses 18 to 20, he says, death makes us no superior to the animals. My life is no different from that of a frog or a fly. But who knows if there is life after death? We are trapped between facing the judgment of God if there is life after death, and a meaningless life if there isn't life after death. And both are unbearably frightening. That's all that natural revelation would give you. But Jesus Christ was born. Into history steps the man who is eternal. And Jesus died and rose again. And here is the wonder of the gospel. Jesus not only shows us that death is not the end, shows us that there is life after death. He not only said it when he said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise, but he actually showed it by rising from the grave himself. But it's even more wonderful than that. He not only shows us that there is life after death so that one day we will have to stand before God in the judgment, but he also suffered and died paying the punishment for our sins so that we could be forgiven and would be safe when we stand in the judgment. With Christ as our Redeemer, we know life is not meaningless because injustice doesn't rule and death doesn't reign. And so we can enjoy our work now 
and know there is life beyond the grave. We need a redeemer, because without a redeemer, there is the stink of injustice and the sting of death. We need God as our Father. We need a Redeemer. And thirdly, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, we need a Comforter. The Beatles sang of Eleanor Rigby. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? And you can be lonely in a crowd. You can be lonely in a church. You can be lonely in a family. We are a generation where Children are abandoned by fathers and mothers, and wives are abandoned by husbands, and husbands are ab abandoned by wives. We live in a generation where we aren't friends with our neighbors. We hardly know the names of those who live over the road. We, we aren't friends with those we work with. We used to talk about the nuclear generation, didn't we? We used to have the nuclear family. But now we're not in the generation of the nuclear family. Now we're in the generation of the broken the fractured family. And loneliness is a major problem. At Bournemouth University, even the church, we would have such a massive problem with students who were so unbearably lonely. And, and some of them, to avoid loneliness, would throw themselves into foolish relationships. And they would go down to the university bar and they would buy drinks for everybody. And we had students who would spend their whole years finances in the first six weeks at university just to try and make friends with people because they were unbearably lonely. Frightened of being rejected. Loneliness, though, makes us very vulnerable to temptation. They say you are vulnerable to temptation. H-A-L-T, halt. Hungry, angry, lonely and tired. Loneliness makes us very vulnerable to temptation. You may be able to identify with Jesus in his singleness, but you're also very exposed to satanic attack. Loneliness is not ideal, but add to loneliness oppression, and you suddenly have a deadly cocktail. Oppression is unacceptable and unbearable. But when you have to bear it, isolated and all on your own, it is incredibly painful. So when your husband divorces you because he's got another girl and he turns everyone against you by telling lies about you, it's agony. It's bad enough being lonely, but injustice as well. When your dad rapes you and then tells people that you're evil, it destroys you. And Solomon looks at this abuse of the isolated, this oppression of the vulnerable, this trampling on the weak, the stuff we see uh, on our television, on the news every week, the stuff that so many of us struggle with day after day. Uh, and he recognizes, first of all, in verses 1 to 3, that this makes us hate life. Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. They have no comforter. 
And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Those who are oppressed with no comforter. Well, first of all, verse 2, the dead, he says, are better off than them. Isn't this how we feel? How many people say, I think I'd be better off dead. We've been seeing this taught all the way through Ecclesiastes. Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the philosopher, uh, it, with his philosophy of despair. Remember how he said we're all on the uh, boat and the boat is sinking? So just enjoy it while you can. He said he's going to go down and play another game of poker while the boat sinks. But it's just ultimately despair. And he told his students, he said, just enjoy it, but, but if you don't in stop enjoying it, well, then just get off the boat. And he found that his students were committing suicide. They were taking him seriously. They didn't enjoy life. So they just got off. They thought the dead were better than the living. But it's not only the existentialists who feel suicidal. Life is unbearable if we are lonely and oppressed. And, verse 3, we, we feel that the unborn are even better off. Better than both is the one who has never been born. You feel that life is unbearable and you want out. But better still, you wish you'd never been born. Like Job, in chapter 3, verse 1, you curse the day when it was announced that you were born. How many parents feel guilty bringing children into this world? They think they would be better if they hadn't been born. With no comforter, life is unbearable. But Jesus is the comforter. And when he ascended into heaven, he gave the Holy Spirit to be another comforter for us. And he comforts us. So when hardships do explode upon us, and injustice bursts into our lives, and this world is so cruel and so unfair, and we feel so isolated, we have someone to turn to a rock to shelter in the time of storm, a foundation to stand on when the waves are pounding against us, a hope for the future because death's door has been broken open and a friend for the present who takes our hands and walks with us. So Christians tell me when they're going through deep waters, they say, I don't know how I would cope if I didn't have the Lord. But we do have the Lord. People say to me, I don't know how the unconverted cope, but we are converted. We have a comforter, and it's true. For many people, they cling on to life despite the poverty and pain, despite the loneliness and injustice. And they hold on to life because deep inside they know that death is not the end. But they feel that they would rather be out of this life than in it. They hate life. And this is why there's so much money in entertainment these days. And so much money in pornography. And so much money in therapies and in drugs to create escapism because people wish that they weren't where they are because life for them seems so painful, so unbearable. 
We hate life. And it makes us unbalanced. It not only makes us hate life, but this world, it makes us unbalanced, all this injustice and oppression. And we're driven to envy of those who we think are better than us. And, and, and we, we feel we've got to do better than our parents did. So our dad had a mansion. We've got to have two mansions. Dad took us on holiday to Portugal. We've got to take our kids on holiday to Brazil. We've just got to do better. We've got to be better than the last. You know, we were given this for Christmas. We've got to give more to our kids for Christmas. Did you ever see the film The Joneses? I saw a bit of it, and then we switched it off. It was so bad. But the f story is of these um, uh, businesses that put a family, meant to be a husband and wife and two kids, into a very wealthy uh, estate and wealthy schools. But these um, businesses, they gave these people the best car, the best clothes, the best golf clubs, the best perfume, to make all their neighbors jealous. So all their neighbors had to go and buy more and more to be better off than them. Because this is what envy does. We're not satisfied with our life. So we've just got to be better than others. Someone said, we buy things we don't want with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. So Solomon says, this is meaningless. It doesn't satisfy and it doesn't last. It's shepherding the brutes. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless a chasing after the wind. And so he ends with a little ditty. The fool is lazy and ruins himself. Fools fold their hands and ruins themselves. He drops out. He won't work. He fritters life away. He ends up destroying himself. This is illustrated by the hippie movement, isn't it? Those who won't work. The workaholic, verse 4, verse 6. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. This is the workaholic. He, he wants everything. He's not satisfied with enough. He, he wants both hands full and nothing never satisfies him. He can't get enough, but he wants more and more and more. So he doesn't have tranquility. He's just after so much more. And this is illustrated not by the hippie of the uh, 70s and 80s, but by the yuppie movement of the 90s. What we need, says Solomon, what we need is sufficient, so we have enough, and satisfaction. We saw this at the end of chapter 2. Here we learn one handful with tranquility. Enough with peace, sufficient with satisfaction. That is best, and that is the gift of God. Chapter 2, verse 24. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. If you know God as your Father, Christ as your Redeemer, 
the Holy Spirit as your comforter, then you can live with sufficiency and satisfaction and salvation. What this world is in agony for, refuses to face up to, and tries to avoid and distract itself from by entertainment and, and various philosophies, we can actually begin to enjoy life. We can enjoy the roller coaster <laughs> because we know God's in control and we know there is an end and we know where we're going. And actually the ups and downs are not everything. We're not trapped into this roller coaster. But we're going home to glory. And in the ups and in the downs, in the oppression, in the injustice, in the loneliness, we can know that God is working his purposes out. God holds the key of all unknown. And in all things, God works for our good. We can have meaningless or we can have God.